Please turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. We'll go down through verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is God's word. Praise be to God. One of the three apostolic fathers of the early church was named Polycarp. He was the Bishop of Smyrna. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. Before he was burned and stabbed, these were his farewell words, his last recorded words. I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. We've been going through the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is Paul's, you might say, farewell discourse. These are his last recorded words that we have of the Apostle Paul written to Timothy. He's under arrest. There is the possibility that he may be executed. This section of Paul's letter is one that reflects on suffering, his sufferings. It teaches us two great lessons, or you might say answers two very important questions. First, what should your aim in the Christian life be? Second, what should you be expecting from the Christian life? First, what should your aim be? Second, what should you expect in the Christian life? First, what should your aim in life be? In verse 10, it tells us that Timothy has followed Paul's teaching, his conduct, his aim in life, his faith, patience, love, steadfastness. We can get a sense of all of those good qualities from the Apostle Paul by reading the book of Acts, also by reading his letters. It's very clear that he did exhibit faith, patience, and love, even towards his enemies. Verse 12 tells us what I think might be able to be encapsulated as his overall aim in life. Verse 12 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's one word that I think should encapsulate your aim and my aim in the Christian life. It would be godliness. That should be our desire, 
That's what you should be aiming at. That's what I should be aiming at. The Apostle Paul doesn't say that money or education or house or family or jobs or career, as great as those things are, many of those things are good things, a spouse, a family, a job, those are great things, but it's not the ultimate aim. Remember the context, the context that this passage is given is that Paul has been teaching against false teachers in the church. There would come in the church those who would lead people astray. One of their marks is that they would be the love, would be the love of self. We talked about that last week. False teachers love themselves. They also love money and pleasure and other things. In contrast to that, Paul is holding himself up as an example. Evil people, it tells us in verse 13, carrying on the theme of false teachers in the church, evil people and imposters, maybe those posing as if they're true followers, true teachers, but they're imposters, they will go from bad to worse. One of the characteristics of a false teacher's teacher is that they would deceive others and deceive themselves. That's one of the characteristics of our age, this age. There will be false teachers in the church. In contrast to that, Paul is holding himself up as an example, not in a, my opinion, not in a proud way, not in a boastful way, but in a way that humbly calls Timothy to follow his example. One way, perhaps the chief way, that you should be growing in godliness, your ultimate aim, is through Scripture. The next passage, one which Pastor Johnson will preach on next week, talks about Scripture. It is God-breathed, breathed out by God. It is perhaps the most famous verse in all of the Bible concerning the inspiration of Scripture. It is the way that you and I, perhaps even the chief way that you and I grow in godliness. That's to be our aim, to grow in godliness through Scripture according to the true example of true teachers like the Apostle Paul. What is your aim? What is your aim in life? I would encourage you to think about having mentors in your life Obviously, the Apostle Paul has long since passed away. However, there are plenty of good mentors to have in life, not just pastors, but older men who have grown in godliness or women who can guide you, who can help you through your trials and tribulations, who you can go to for wisdom, for guidance, for prayer. I encourage you to follow not only Paul's example in Scripture, but also have men or women in your life who are speaking into your life who know you. It's also important to have Barnabases, people who are with you in the same walk of life, who will go with you through the suffering that you may experience. What was Paul's aim? Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, tells us that This was his aim. He he would write, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For the Apostle Paul, knowing Christ, his Lord, was his chief aim. It was of ultimate worth. Do you remember the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13? He tells the parable of a man who finds a treasure in a field. It's buried, but when he unearths it, he discovers its worth. So he buries it again, and he goes out and sells all that he has to buy the field. Because it's of surpassing worth. It is worth more than anything else that he has. The point is that if you would like to grow into godliness, which you should, if that's your aim, and it should be, you have to value the gospel. You have to value a relationship with the Lord. You have to value time spent with the Lord. Is that your aim? Godliness should be your aim. Secondly, what should you expect from the Christian life? If godliness is your aim, what should you be expecting? You should expect that you will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I would like to read from, you, uh, from Calvin on this verse. Does it mean that everyone will experience physical persecution? Here's what Calvin writes. There have been many godly persons who've never suffered banishment or imprisonment or flight or any kind of persecution. I reply, it is not always in one way that Satan persecutes the servants of Christ, but yet it is absolutely unavoidable that all of them shall have the world for their enemy in some form or other, that their faith may be tried and their steadfastness proved, for Satan, who is the continual enemy of Christ, will never suffer anyone to be at peace during his whole life. And there will always be wicked men that are thorns in our sides. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus, you can expect that you will never feel at home. You will never have an earthly sense of peace in this life. You will never have a time when your faith will not be tried or that someone will not be opposing you for doing what is right. You won't, we won't all experience physical persecution, nor should we, all, should we seek it. But rather, we will be opposed. That is something you should expect in the Christian life. Verse 11, if you look at verse 11, says that Timothy had followed Paul's teaching, his persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. What's he talking about? In Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14, we learn what Paul is talking about. Antioch in Pisidia was different than Antioch in Syria. Antioch in Syria was, in some ways, a home base for missions. It is where the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were sent from. He 
goes to Antioch in Pisidia, which is different. It's a high-status Roman colony that has a large Jewish population. He gives a fairly lengthy sermon that is recorded in the book of Acts chapter 13 for us. At the end of that, there are many converts that are made. The next Sabbath, he goes into the synagogue again, which is his habit, to preach the gospel when the whole town comes out to see him. The Jews get upset with Paul. They persuade the crowds. It doesn't say how, but in verse 50 of chapter 13, it says that Paul was persecuted. He goes then to Iconium. In Iconium, he does a similar thing, going into the synagogue, as was his habit, to proclaim the good news. The town, or many in the town, become believers, but then the Jews arrive and attempt to persuade the crowds to stone Paul, so he flees. Then they go to Lystra. There, Paul heals a crippled man. After this miraculous sign, the townspeople in Lystra believe that he is Hermes and that Barnabas is Zeus. They think they're Greek gods. They begin to try to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. The Jews come from Iconium and from Antioch and persuade the crowds And in one moment, they are wanting to sacrifice to them because they think they're gods. But in the next moment, they stone Paul and leave him for dead. Here's what it it says in Acts chapter 14, verse 19 and following. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Now listen to this. He has just been stoned. Listen to this. When they had preached the gospel to that city, meaning Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. If you had recently been stoned, would you go back to the same place that you had been stoned? I would not. I would have thought Paul would tell Timothy, don't go to Lystra, don't go to Iconium, don't go to Antioch, because... They persecuted me. But Paul's example was to turn right around and continue to strengthen those of the faith in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. He was not, in other words, he was not avoiding suffering. He didn't see it as something to be ashamed of, as something that discredited his apostleship, for something that should be avoided at all costs, but rather something that he would go through on his journey to godliness, to bearing the, Christ, bearing the cross, and to looking more like Christ. That, that was his aim, to know Christ. 
An interesting side note, Timothy was from Lystra. In Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we learn that Timothy was from Lystra. Some people think that Timothy was there when the Apostle Paul was stoned. Some people think that he witnessed it. When Paul is writing here to Timothy and says that you have followed my teaching, my persecutions and sufferings, some people think he literally had followed Paul around to watch this happen. Whatever the case was, Timothy was clearly aware that following in Paul's footsteps would mean suffering. In contrast to other ideas floating around in our day and in the Apostle Paul's day, suffering does not distract us or lead us away from our overall aim in life, but rather suffering can be one way that God uses to conform us to, to Christ, to look more like Christ. The goal in modern society seems to, prevent, to be to prevent suffering or to avoid suffering, but this passage would indicate to us that not only is suffering real and unfair, it is nonetheless purposeful. It can be purposeful for your life. How do you view suffering? Have you grown to expect it in life? I would like to read from Martin Luther on suffering. Luther had developed what he called the theology of the cross. Here are some of the things that he said concerning suffering. God can be found only in suffering in the cross. He said, he would write, For since God takes away all our goods and our life through many tribulations, it is impossible for the heart to be calm and to bear this unless it clings to better goods. That is, united with God through faith. In 1518, he would write the Heidelberg Disputation, and here's what he would say. He deserves to be called a theologian who comprehends the things of God seen through suffering and the cross. For Luther, suffering wasn't just some incidental things that happened to us, would happen to us in life. Suffering helped us to understand the Bible. It helped us to understand and interpret the Bible and understand what God's intentions are and were and have been for humanity. It was God's plan that Christ himself would suffer and die. Isn't it interesting that Paul says that from them all the Lord rescued me? He says these sufferings had happened to him at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. How can he say that? How can he say that the Lord rescued him if he was stoned. Scroll your eyes down to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Or rather, let's start in verse 6 of chapter 4. He'll say, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me 
the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As great as that verse is, I was actually looking for a different verse. <laughs> um, But there is another verse where he talks about being rescued, and for some reason, I'm uh, embarrassed to say I can't find it at the moment. Nonetheless, the point is that Paul didn't see rescue from physical suffering as real rescue. Uh, it was, it was rescue in a limited sense, but what he was really talking about, he could look forward to his death and say that the Lord would still rescue him, even from death. So how could he say that? How could he say that he would be rescued even from death? It's because his ultimate aim in life was not to avoid death, it was not to find a way out, but rather become like him even unto death. Philippians, let me read Philippians chapter 3. Verse 10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I would attain the resurrection of the dead, that he would share in his sufferings. That was his aim. He aimed to share in the sufferings of Christ. You should expect, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you will share in his sufferings. You shouldn't expect that life will be easy for you. Your aim should be to look like Christ, to know God, but you shouldn't expect not to go through suffering. What is your aim in life, and what do you expect from life? May our aim in life be to look more like Christ, and consider this, that the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the perfect example of patience, of love, right? Of teaching. He's the perfect example of patience and steadfastness. And he was persecuted for our sake. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he was not rescued. But rather, he endured the wrath of God for your sake in order that you could be rescued from the punishment of sin, that you wouldn't have to endure the wrath of God. That's why Paul can say, he rescued me. That's why he can say that he can look forward to his death and that the crown of righteousness will be given to him on that day and to all who have loved his appearing. Is that how you love God? Can you look forward to the day which you meet the Lord with joy, with wide open eyes, with arms wide open, not afraid of what might come in this life, but rather looking forward to the day that you meet the Lord. May that be our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you for the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who 
willingly condescended to be with us, to be among us. We thank you for his life of perfect love, steadfastness under trial, patience, his example. We thank you, too, that he was not rescued from the wrath of God. We pray that you would forgive us of our sins and that our sins would be laid upon Christ. We thank you for that assurance that we have because of what Christ has done, that we can come to you knowing that our sins have been paid for and that we can have courage and hope in the midst of suffering and persecution. I pray that our aim in life would be to please you, that our aim in life would be to be godly, to follow the example of the Apostle Paul, Polycarp, and others who have led godly lives and submitted to your will, whatever it would be. May we not seek out suffering and persecution, but if it comes our way, Lord, we trust that you will use it to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ so that you would be glorified and others would see you through us. May you shatter our expectations of earthly comfort, of earthly love, so that we could have true joy and hope and assurance in our relationship with Christ, who is of surpassing worth. May we consider all else rubbish in comparison to knowing him. In Jesus' name. Amen.